We have read and we have sung about uh, the good news of the gospel, about what it is that the Lord Jesus Christ has done for sinners in coming and in offering himself. We've read of his arrest, his trial, so-called, and his death upon the cross, and of course, of his resurrection as well. And for the next few minutes, I just want to draw our attention to a few verses. Mainly, we'll, we'll look in, uh, at a few verses in chapter 18 from what we read of, of the Gospel of John. And I want to focus on the reality that what is happening here as Jesus is offering himself is something that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit wanted to do. And was very pleased to do and delighted to do. If we think about the reality of God's holiness and we think about the reality of man's sinfulness and just how uh, bad our sin is in light of God and his holiness such that the wages of sin is death. That even one sin, if you consider what Adam and Eve did in the garden when they performed really one act of sin that maybe might seem not that bad. Nobody was murdered or anything like that. They just simply ate this fruit they were told not to eat. And it plunged all then creation into this curse. The wages of sin is death. Uh, sin, even what might seem slight to us, is a, uh, a, a significant violation of God's law. And God being holy and just must punish sin. And so as we think about this and we think about Christ coming in order to take the sins of sinners like us upon himself and having God's wrath poured out upon him for our sins. And we think about the fact that God says that he will forgive those who believe in Jesus. We can sometimes have this attitude, I think, that, well, God sort of reluctantly is going to let me in. He's reluctantly maybe going to look the other way. We, we, we might picture him as perhaps standing there at the gates of his kingdom and he says, well, fine, you can come in, but you're truly, you're the worst. But yeah, I'll let you in, fine, you can come in. And we, we might picture God with this uh, sort of attitude about it because the reality is we are awful, we are sinful, we have sinned a lot in our lives in every conceivable way, in our thinking, in our actions, in our attitudes, uh, we, even when we've known better, we have still sinned. And so we can think of God very begrudgingly of maybe pardoning a sinner. And yet when we read the Bible, we see that God was under no compulsion to do this. Uh, there, is, there is no outside force acting upon God that makes him do the things that he does. And, and even as we read through chapters 18 to 20 in John, we see this reality that Jesus is doing this, going through this very, very much willingly. So if we look at chapter 18 for a moment, let's begin in verse 4. Let's just think about for a second, who's in control here? Who's in control of what's going on? Beginning in verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him. He knows precisely what's going to take place. 
And if he was seeking to avoid this, would he be in the garden, knowing all that's about to take place? He would be elsewhere. This would never be happening. He knows exactly what's going to happen here. Knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? So these men are here. They've brought clubs and swords, and they're coming to arrest Jesus. Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. That's not a a normal response to that kind of a question and answer. When Jesus answers and declares, I am he, The Greek text simply says, I am. Uh, The ESV translation that I'm looking at gives a footnote that even tells us this. And I would submit to you and suggest to you that when Jesus responds in this way, that he is alluding to what the Lord said to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14. When Moses is talking to the Lord at the burning bush and he asks, who are you, Lord? He says, I am who I am. And now as they come and they are seeking Jesus, Jesus declares, I am. And these men fall back and hit the ground as if this raging wind has swept through and knocked them off their feet. I ask you again, who is in control of this situation and this scene? When Jesus says elsewhere that no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down. When he talks about laying his life down for the sheep, this is what he means. It is absolutely true that these men and those who are scheming the death of Jesus, they are acting unjustly. They are acting cruelly. Um, That that is, Jesus deserved nothing of what he went through as we think about this. Uh, They are doing exactly what they want to do as they scheme and, and plot to arrest Jesus and put him to death. But at the end of the day, Jesus is laying down his life of his own accord. He's in complete control here. I am he. They draw back and fall to the ground. And so let's try this again. He asks them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I, we're not, I wonder how hesitant they were to say that again. But they say, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I, I told you I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. He wants them to be gone. The Lord is in complete control here of what's going on. And even if we jump ahead into chapter 19, when Jesus does die on the cross, he declares after drinking the sour wine in 19 verse 30, it is finished, finished, and he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Even prior to that, when he's speaking to Pilate, And Pilate says, do you not know that I have the authority to either condemn you and crucify you or let you go? And Jesus says, um, I'll read it for you. Verse 11 of chapter 19, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. The authority that you have is derived from God. We are here now because this is indeed the plan of God. There's a willingness here to go through with this. This is... 
God in love sent his son and Jesus willingly came to accomplish this work. Uh, Back in chapter 18, let's continue. Verse 8, Jesus had said, uh, let these men go. Verse 9, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now, this is one of those moments that we think of Peter and we read this and we roll our eyes and we think, Peter, 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 what in the world are you doing here? But in order to, I think, have just a, maybe a little bit of understanding or sympathy with the man Peter, uh, and not to be too quickly dismissive, remember what's happening here and consider the evil of what is going on. Okay, the, this group of men have come under cover of darkness in order to arrest the perfect Son of God, Son of Man. The Son of, eternal Son of God in human form who has done nothing but what God the Father has told him to do. He is absolutely perfect, pure, spotless, only ever said and done that which is perfectly right. No stain of sin whatsoever. And here come these men, and they want to arrest him under cover of darkness so as to not stir it up, under no real legitimate charge. They're going to try him in a kangaroo court, and they're going to pressure Pilate to, even though he sees no guilt in the man, to put him to death. This is a very wicked, wicked scene and a wicked act. And we are told that there is this high priest servant that is there, Malchus. We're given his name here, interestingly, by John. We're not told precisely what this man's role is in this event. He's one of apparently a number of these men who are there to arrest him. But again, what he is participating in here is an incredible act of wickedness, deserving of divine judgment. I would submit to you, suggest to you, if you were to ever find yourself in a situation like this, and you're a slave or a servant of another, and they say, you need to go and do this on my behalf, you need to go arrest the Son of God on my behalf, this man, Jesus, Um, The answer is no, right? The answer is I'm not going to do this. Well, you have to, you're my slave. I'll put you to death if you don't do this. Whatever the threat might be, your answer has to be, I will not participate in this wickedness, right? That's the only answer here. Even if this is just an innocent man they want to treat poorly and arrest unjustly and put to death, just a a man who is otherwise a sinner, the answer is still, I'm not going to go participate in that let alone that this is the Son of God. Malchus has no excuse at the end of the day for being there. He is participating in wickedness. Peter has some understanding. His understanding gets filled out, of course, uh, later on upon Jesus' uh, resurrection. Uh, We see Peter, he still struggles with some things later on in Galatians chapter 2. Paul says he had to go confront Peter when he uh, gave in to the Judaizers and so on. But Peter understands that the only hope for mankind here is the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Peter understands what's going on here is wicked. And while his response is not correct, there's at least some, I think, we, we should identify somewhat with his, his response. He's upset. This should not be. This is not right. And I'm going to defend my Lord. And so he pulls out his sword. And it's interesting, he says he cut off his right ear. That kind of detail is interesting. If you're a right-handed man and you cut off another man's right ear and you're facing that man, that's not an easy task to pull off, to come across his face and get his ear. Uh, Peter is not simply just kind of nicking him with a warning shot. Peter evidently is swinging to lop this man's head off. And he's ducking, and as he ducks, Peter's only able to clip his ear. Now, this was a, a very real, tense moment in which Peter is all in to defend his Lord. And he's swinging for Malchus's head. And the response of Jesus, I think, is remarkable. Given the wickedness of what's going on, given the fact that sin demands death, Given the fact that Jesus is the eternal Son of God in human form, he could easily have said, run the man through. He deserves it. But verse 11, so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This is an incredible mercy. This is an incredible mercy to Malchus specifically. And this is an incredible mercy to all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That he says, we are not avoiding this now. Put that sword away. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is obviously yes. Yes, I shall go through with this. Yes, this is indeed the Father's will. Of course, I am going to go through with this. I will drink the cup that the Father has given to me. Throughout Scripture, the cup is used to reference suffering. And specifically, it is often used to refer to the wrath of God being poured out on a person or upon a nation. It's used that way a number of places. Isaiah chapter 51 is one such text. But also Jeremiah 25. Here's what Jeremiah 25, 15 says. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Jeremiah, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. Jesus going to the cross was Jesus going to drink the wrath, that is the cup of the wrath of the fury of God Almighty. And of course, God's wrath was not aimed at Jesus because Jesus was a sinner in himself. Rather, Jesus was substituting in for sinners to have the wrath of God for our sins poured out upon himself. And he suffered there on the cross under the wrath of God. And he satisfied God's wrath for sinners. We read from Romans 3, it uses the word propitiation. That's what it means. He satisfied, he, he drank down this cup of God's wrath, and there is no more wrath for all those 
who look to Jesus Christ in faith, who believe in him. Our sins placed upon the Son, God pouring out judgment upon the Son, that we might go free, that we might be counted righteous by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, Jesus, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? He very willingly goes through with that. In the book of Hebrews, we're even told that it was for the joy that was set before him that Christ endured the cross, despising its shame, but he joyfully went ahead with the cross. He came desiring to save with the purpose of saving. In Luke chapter 22, as Luke recounts these events of Jesus' arrest, uh, we're told there that Jesus actually healed Malchus's ear. Again, what a kindness that he shows to this man. He deserves death. He deserves judgment. He's performing a, a tremendously wicked act along with all these others. All that's happened to him is his ear is gone. That's really nothing compared to what judgment he deserves. But Jesus tells Peter to put the sword away. And then he goes to this wicked man and he heals the man's ear. We're not told why it is that John gives us the man's name, but one possible reason that I think is plausible is he may have been known to John's original audience as John writes this. He's reminding them, by the way, this is the man Malchus whom you know. That perhaps the man did come to repent of his sins and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We can't know that for certain, but obviously what we see here is a demonstration of God's patience towards sinners, a demonstration of God's mercy. The cross is full of the display of God's kindness and mercy and patience towards sinners. It is certainly true, and we must be aware, that God's patience is not forever Nobody has an infinite amount of time. We will all one day die and stand before God. After death comes the judgment. And of course, the day is coming when our Lord Jesus will return in glory. And with that, he will come as a warrior and he will come to bring about judgment. But until such time, so long as he tarries, so long as he waits, so long as that is delayed, and I say delay from our perspective, there is mercy and there is pardon in Christ Jesus. And God Almighty, the God whom we have offended, says to sinners, come. Calls sinners to turn and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He will not despise and cast out the sinner who beats his breast in recognition of his own sinfulness and appeals to God for mercy. At the end of our Bible, in Revelation 22, verse 17, we're told, it says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty, Come. 
Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. God freely, graciously pardons in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And this isn't something that he does reluctantly. He very gladly, God does, pardons those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's his plan. It's his work of redemption. It's his invitation to come and to take the water of life without price. This is the good news for sinners. It's the good news for you and for me. If you feel the weight of your sinfulness, God Almighty says, come, take of this water without price. Acknowledge your sins before me. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and he will graciously, gladly pardon. You remember the prodigal son and the parable Jesus told of the prodigal son. What does the father do when the son is far off? The son is rehearsing the things he's going to have to do to try to earn himself back into God's graces, into the father's graces. And the father just runs to the son. He can't even get out his full speech. And the father is welcoming him in, giving him the ring, giving him clothing, the cloak. What is this signifying to us? The, the joy that God has if you will, in saving sinners. That he does not cast off the one who does not try to work and earn his way into God's favor, but simply believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. The call for sinners to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is something that our God commands. But it is also spoken of and it is presented to us sinners often in Scripture in a very inviting way. Come and take the water of life without price. The word invitation is not inappropriate. Would God show mercy and grace to a sinner like me? And not even just out of some sort of cold reluctance or some sort of, well, I guess so. No one forced this upon our God. He could have just wiped humanity out at any moment. But instead, in love for the world, God sent his son. That whoever would believe in him would not perish under God's wrath and just condemnation but might be forgiven and receive eternal life. And the Lord Jesus did not just die on the cross. He rose again on the third day from the dead. And he has ascended to the Father's right hand where he intercedes for all those he saves. He is alive and he is returning one day. Romans 10 verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And so do not delay. Put no confidence in your own goodness, in your own works, in your own flesh. Turn from that. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Put your hope in him. And for all who do that, for all who have done that, 
see again and be reminded again of God's goodness toward you, of his grace to you in Christ Jesus. Look up from your failings and sins to the promised mercy of God for those in Christ Jesus, to the perfect sacrifice that truly has paid for your sins, the sins of yesterday and days gone by, the sins of today and your sins of tomorrow and into the future as well. See the love of our triune God displayed at the cross. See the willingness of the Lord Jesus Christ to drink the cup of wrath of God the Almighty on your behalf. And see that it is indeed, as he declared, finished. Make this your hope. Make this your boast. Make this your resting place. Make this your joy. Let's pray together. Father, as we have sung, what language could we borrow to thank you for this precious gift of salvation? There is no appropriate, there is no adequate way to thank you. None of it is enough. Father, we, we, but we do, such as we are able, with our stammering tongues, we do thank you and we praise you. We acknowledge and confess that we deserve judgment for our sins against you. We acknowledge and confess that we don't fully grasp the extent of how vile sin is. And so, Father, we are amazed that you would lovingly and graciously pardon. That nobody, no thing has forced this act upon you, but you have freely undertaken to save a people for yourself in and through your Son by the power of your Holy Spirit. So we praise you, we marvel at this. Father, help us to be strengthened in this grace, to be confident of what Christ has accomplished for us. I pray that it would be our joy to see this good news proclaimed and published to a sinful, dying world. Father, we pray that you would yet save many who do not currently Confess the Lord Jesus to be the Lord in our midst, in our town, in our province, here in Weyburn, in the Kisbe, in our Kola region, in Regina, and all over. Father, I pray that you would give us opportunity and courage to take those opportunities to share this good news with sinners. Father, make us unashamed of this gospel that is the power of God and the salvation for those who believe. And I pray that as we go through this day that we would just, again, be renewed and strengthened in this grace and confident, confident that Christ has indeed died to save us. 
Father, if any here do not know you, young or old, I pray that you would break through their sinfulness and hardness and lack of understanding and draw them sweetly and graciously and kindly to yourself. That they might see your goodness and your love and your mercy and your justice all displayed at the cross. Father, we praise you. You are good and very merciful to us. And so we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.